Let's turn to 2 Kings 5. Let's turn to 2 Kings 5. It's going to be up on the screen for you to refer to it, but I want to tell you a story that is shocking, that is surprising, that is unlikely, and I don't think it gets enough pub in our church and some of our other churches. This story is incredible. This story is shocking. And because we're in between series, I want to spend two weeks looking at this incredible, surprising story. I want to see a few surprises this evening, and we'll pick up the thrilling conclusion, Lord willing, next week. Same bat time, same bat channel. Any old school Batman fans? But we're going to meet a man named Naaman. I'm telling you this story is shocking, not just because of what happened. This man gets healed. It's shocking because of who it happens to. If you asked a good Israelite, Israel is God's people in the Old Testament, his nation, following God's way, worshiping the true God. If you plucked an Israelite and said, hey, give me a list of the most deserving and the most likely people that you think ought to receive God's power and presence and healing touch. I would bet you Naaman would be on the bottom of the list. Naaman has a resume we're about to see that would put him squarely outside of God's work. Or so we think. So tonight, I want to see how an outsider and an enemy of God's people suddenly finds himself within God's reach. Because I want us to be reminded of this. There are no lost causes in God's mission to renew the world. I want us to be reminded that God has always, is always, and will always invite outsiders in. It is so simple, but we simply just keep forgetting and failing. And I want to be reminded, if you'll allow me, by this shocking and surprising story of a man that was so far out, so far beyond God's reach, but he finds that God is actually closer than he ever imagined. He's actually within God's reach, within God's orbit. Y'all with me? Second Kings 5? I'm going to talk to you about kings in a little bit with some Bible study orientation, but I want to dive right into the story of our surprising, unlikely friend, Mr. Naaman. Shout out Naaman High School graduates or alums. Boo, gigamouse, garland rules. Second Kings 5, Second Kings 5, let's talk about Mr. Naaman. Naaman, on his resume, is ignorant of the true and living God. Naaman is powerful. He's a great man in the sight of his master. He's highly regarded. He's proud, as we'll see in the course of our story. And this dude is rich that we're about to see in this story. 
all the kind of things that you put on a world resume and you say, this dude knows what's up. This dude has it going on. But the reason he's actually at the bottom of the list of who you think God would want to work with and heal and help is because this guy was not just a part of an enemy nation called Aram, which is an old way of saying Syria. He's not just part of this nation that is always fighting with Israel. This dude was a commander in this army. This dude is the kind of dude that would be a general in Iran or North Korea or a a top-tier fighter in ISIS. Fill in the blank with some guy that you don't want to touch with a 10-foot pole because you know that he has done some dirty work against you and yours. This guy was on the top of the list, but here comes the kicker. Y'all see it highlighted there on the screen? He gives his whole resume of this guy that is large and in charge, even though he's an enemy, and then the ton of bricks, but he had leprosy. Now, leprosy is a skin disease catch-all word in the Bible that can go from full-blown leprosy like you might be imagining. The kinds of leper colonies, or maybe you've seen some Bible TV shows, the guys that are wrapped up saying, unclean, unclean. You with me? The kind of guys with the horrible, horrible gut-wrenching disease that begins to destroy your extremities to the point where it goes from numbness to full-on um, death and they fall off and it's painful, it's horrible, it's, it's still around. So that's on one end of the leprosy extreme. But listen to this, y'all. Leprosy could even include a wide range of just skin diseases, It could be psoriasis. It could be the white bumps and flecks and itchiness and the kinds of things you could go to a dermatologist for today. But back then, you need to understand this. Every single ancient person had some sense that if you had leprosy, you were cursed. If you saw me in high school and all my zits, you'd say, God has cursed you. But Jesus heals a little bit. I still, but Jesus heals, and I, here I am. Y'all need to understand that Naaman was on the bottom of the list because not only was he an enemy and excluded, they thought he was cursed. Babylonian ancient text, Assyrian ancient text said, let the man with white bumps or sores be counted cursed, forsaken by God, and cast out from the community that he belongs to. Now this is a little bit of an interesting note because Naaman is still married. He's still, we're gonna find out, in and around his king, his leader. So he must not have full on leprosy leprosy. He may have something just like psoriasis, but he is still at the bottom of the list, excluded, no way, no how, does God or God's people want anything to do with him until you read this other thing in the story. Did you see this strange note 
that says because he was so highly thought of and regarded and getting all these promotions, it was because through him, this cast out, cursed, enemy, military leader, the Lord had given victory to his people, right? To God's people, right? No. Is this a trip? Through this enemy, outsider, God was at work in his life to give a victory to an enemy nation of Syria. This is where the original hearers of this story say, okay, this is nuts. You're already talking about a dude that's an enemy leader with leprosy. Now you're telling me that God is at work against us and with him. This should give us a huge surprise, number one. Why would God help him? Why would God help him? Spoiler alert, God's going to help him. And I think that there's a challenge baked into this story. And I want to put it in some real terms by telling you, instead of just meeting Naaman, what if you met my friend Jim? Jim is a real person. I haven't talked to him in a good while, but I'm confident that if you met him today, you would meet a good man with a good job who also serves with his wife in a children's ministry in South Dallas. You would see that he is serving in this church. He's a constructive and helpful member of society. He's got his family alongside of him. And what you wouldn't see is how just several years before, he was fighting and fighting to try to re-engage with his kids who'd become estranged with. You wouldn't see how Jim was a drug user turned drug dealer turned gang member turned convict. If you saw Jim a few years back, you wouldn't see the children's minister you would see someone that God must not want anything to do with. And the question that I think has a parallel with Naaman's life and Jim's life is this. When was God working with him? And I'll tell you that God began to get Jim's attention when he was in prison. Not jail, prison. God began to get his attention through using the 12-step recovery class. God began working in his life to where he began to work the steps and work the books, and he was released from prison on a Sunday, and he wound up through a ministry at a halfway house that the place I was serving at before had a partnership with. He wound up in our little Christian 12-step on a Monday, and he said, I believe that God is at work in my life, and now I'm convinced of it. 
And he handed me this big book that's called Celebrate Recovery on the Inside because it's inside the penitentiary. And he said, this is the last book, the last worksheet, the last step that I did. It's on page 334. And tonight you just taught the next page, 335. I did not want to leave prison because I was thinking, how in the world am I going to complete my steps and complete my task that I think God has called me to? I was thinking he was working in my life, and then I think, man, it's all for naught because now I'm going to go back into the same place. I'm homeless. I've got nothing and no one. And he says, but tonight, God must be up to something. And I'm 25, and I'm going, great. Um, I don't know what to do. And the good news is, I don't remember what I said or what I did. I just happened to show up and bear witness to the fact that God is at work even when we aren't. That God is always looking and searching and working and calling and inviting all the people we are too busy to see. All the people that we're too afraid to engage with. All the people we want to round up and put in jail, put in prison, put in detention camps, fill in the blank. We can't touch them. We don't want them. And God is at work in them. The only question is, would we open up our eyes long enough to see that if God is moving toward them, why aren't we? No one in a million years thought that Naaman had a chance. But... He had leprosy, but he was an enemy commander against God's people. He was ignorant of who God was. This man did not even know that God was at work in his life, orchestrating and moving around him so that he may be alive in him. He has no idea. All we see are prejudices and assumptions and impossibilities, but he's an addict, but he is fill in the blank. But he is LGBTQ plus fill in the blank. But he's illegal. But he's angry. But she's sick. But he's a sinner. But, but, but the only thing that really matters when it comes to buts is this. When you were dead, when you were cast out, when you were going your own way, following the way of the world, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love for you, even when you were dead in your sins, he made you alive in Christ Jesus. It's by grace that you've been saved, not your works. The good news is when we could not get close enough to God, God goes out to us. The gospel is God that is continually pursuing and moving all the butts. We see the butts, and he sees a child of his waiting for adoption. And we label and we name and we say, I can't even pray for them or talk with them or engage with them because they're a this or a that. And I label this and I label that. I mute them on Facebook. I unfollow them. I unfriend them. Surely God can't move in them because they voted this way or voted that way. Because they said this or said that. Because they won't forgive me, I won't forgive them. 
But, 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 Naaman is a natural 40 below that person. And God is moving in their lives. And when Jesus says, pray for, move toward, bless the ones who persecute you, it's because he wants to transform our hearts first, and then our eyes will follow by seeing them as someone who's beloved and longed for and made in the image of God. Could we embrace them before we ever encounter them? Could we label them as nothing but someone made in God's image and in need of God's touch? It has everything to do with how we are God's people together and why we need reminding. And I love, love, love this story so much. Because when Naaman does all the wrong things, God hasn't given up on him. Y'all know what military leaders did back in the day? Man, they make war, they get their little posse, they went to these villages, they went to these small towns, and they rounded up what they could take. And one of the things that Naaman took was a young Israelite girl. He kidnapped her, he owns her, he conscripts her into slavery. She will never go home. She will never be married to an Israelite person. She will never know her family again. She is far from everything she knew, and she can't call home. She can't Skype. She can't go back to the temple of God to worship. She can't hear the scriptures and stories and the Torah read to her, instructed to her. She is the last person who should respect or care one bit about Naaman, her slave owner. And she, serving Naaman's wife, sees this leprosy, sees this toll that it's taking on this person that can't fully engage in his world, and she says... If you could only find this prophet that lives in the region of Samaria, if you could only find this guy, he does these powerful things, I'm certain that he could heal you. This young slave girl points her enemy captor owner to find healing. Y'all, I think I'd be spitting in this dude's oatmeal every morning. And she is used by God to point this unlikely person to life and healing. This is the second shocking surprise. Why would she help him? And by the way, it bears repeating that in God's kingdom, Jesus, when asked, who is my neighbor?, was asked that question because the man's question was really about where's the boundary marker I can put around these neighbors that you've asked me to love? Where's the line that I can draw around my neighbor? You told me to love my neighbor as myself. Okay, so, so wife, got it. Kids, got it. Brother, okay. Parents, yeah, most days. And let me just draw this line around these people that I love, that are easy to love. And then he tells a story. And he tells a story about the wrong and unlikely person that you encounter. And he says, no, no, no that's your neighbor. 
This is your neighbor. In our church, we need reminding, I need reminding every day that every person we encounter is not an enemy, is not a this, is not a that, is not a but, is not a label, but a neighbor to be loved as ourselves. And here's the problem with God. (laughs) Y'all wonder what I'm about to say next. The problem with God is that he's always messing up my borders. The problem with God is that I make a nice little circle around these people that receive God's blessing. These people are the ones that God's at work in. And the problem is he does what he does like he did yesterday. And he takes my little boundary marker and he just scoots it a little bit further. And the more I try to lean in and say, God, who's my neighbor? All of a sudden, he's going to bring me an opportunity where he's going to scoop this thing just a little bit further. Like the agnostic atheist person that doesn't believe that Jesus rose from the dead that was telling me about reading his Bible and how he sees how God is actually this being that's calling out and I think we've got to respond. And he's preaching the gospel to me of how God is reaching out and calling us beyond our petty divisions and how in Christ he's broken the walls of hostility and boundaries and I'm sitting there trying to be all cool and collected in the coffee shop and saying, this dude is preaching the gospel to me and he doesn't believe Jesus is alive. God, what are you doing? And I just see him move this boundary to say, I'm still working. I'm still moving. When you thought he was a lost cause, dude, get in on what I'm doing and don't mess it up. Just scoot this boundary line out here and love him. Be present to him. Speak truth to him. Speak life to him and say, yes, 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 you're getting it. Jesus is so much better than you thought he was. And y'all, how much better is the God we have than the one we thought we had? How much better is the God we have than the one we had all figured out? Who's in, who's out, and he says, let me just take this, blow it up, and show you, if you dare, I'm more loving than you could ever ask or imagine. I'm more powerful than you could ever ask or imagine. I am here and at work. Would you join what I'm up to? This story is shocking. It is shocking And I cannot overestimate how wild it is that God is at work doing the exact opposite of what we expect him to do. For the exact opposite kind of person that he's doing it. But here's the truth. God's is an upside down kingdom. And we introduce this theme of a slave girl who's loving and blessing her enemy. And it's introducing this theme that we're going to see, Lord willing, next week. Where the powerless are actually more wise in speaking truth to the powerful. Because God loves, loves, loves to invert our reality. He loves to surprise us. He loves to move us beyond what we ever thought. And he's constantly rezoning our neighborhood. Picking up our story again with Mr. Naaman. He takes this slave girl's word for it, and he goes to his king and says, Hey, man, can I get two weeks paid vacation? i got to roll to Israel. And the king says, Sure, your leprosy's grossing me out, man. I'm going to give you a ton of money. Take that horse down there, wash it before you get back, vacuum it, take it to the car wash, but go for it. Matter of fact, I'm going to write you a letter, king to king, that says, Hey, king, I know we've had beef. I know we've got this uneasy tension and alliance on account of us like raiding you and taking some of your girls. Sorry, 
I'm going to send this letter. I'm going to send you out. And so Naaman rolls up with his Bentley with the equivalent of about $700 million in today's money. He sends Naaman with his entourage and stacks ready to broker the king because he thought the king could get it done and have the power. He thought his power and his money and his status could just be exchanged for some magic. So he rolls up, and I love this. I love this. The king gets the letter, opens it up, and he's already easy. Y'all have a text message from that person that name comes up, and you're like, what is this going to be? This is how this guy was. This Israelite king said, oh, this will be good. And he tears his robe, and he freaks out, and he goes, is he serious? Is he trying to pick a fight with me? This is a trap. This is a trap. I know it. Because if I can't heal him, then I know that he's going to like send more people, and he's going to wipe us out again. And he tears his robe, which is their way of saying, oh, man, what am I going to do? He's desperate, and he basically says this. He asked me to do something that only God can do. And everyone hearing this story today and 6,000 years ago says, exactly. And isn't it powerful that the king thinks the power is with the king and his power? And so this guy is saying, only God can do this exactly. And here's the trick. I feel for this king because this king does what you and I always do. When you are desperate, we can send off in two different directions. The first is bailing out, or you can lean in. I am a bailout person. That's too hard. I'm done. You go finish making the Ikea thing. I'm done. When it's tough, when it's hard, when I can't figure it out, I don't know the next step. My default is to bail. And I was so encouraged by another person within this community, and she gave me permission to share this. This is in real time with a real person. And I'm so grateful when Lynette and Jeremiah were over this week, we asked them the question, where are you on your journey with Jesus? How many of you have heard that question in this church? I hope you're not tired of it. We like to ask it. Where are you, good, bad, or ugly? Where are you on your journey with Jesus? And she says, I'm finding myself for maybe the first time in a long time really learning to lean in to God. I borrowed this language from her. She says, not in spite of everything that's going on, but in the midst of everything that's going on. It's not all doom and gloom. It's not all horrible. She's just a little bit stressed. They're getting married. I'll tell you, that's a lot of things to sort out. And she says, I'm really learning to lean in. And we say, that's it. In your real everyday life, the only life that you have to give is the one that you're living right now. And every day, God greets you with an invitation that says, here is life. Would you come to me? Would you come follow me? Would you lean in and trust even though you don't know what today holds? This is the trick. This is the invitation. And when especially we find that we can't do it, the first thing you've got to remember is that admitting we can't is actually a step toward faith in the God who can. We say in this church all the time that we pray believing that God can, asking that God will, 
and then trusting that he loves us no matter what. Sometimes he will not fix it and do exactly what you want to do, which is what Naaman is about to find out. But when Elijah hears that the king is freaking out and bailing out, Elijah basically says, don't panic. Remember that God is with us and God is at work. Now, this is an important pause to understand our Bibles. Look with me real quick. Let's say that the first five books are about yay. This is called the Torah. This is a word for the way or the instruction. The first five books of our Christian Bible are the way and the law that these people should live in the Old Testament. Then what happens is you shift gears after Deuteronomy into the books of the history. This is the story and the history of God's people. Good, bad, and ugly. Mostly ugly. The books of the kings, one and two kings, was one book narrating the drama and reality show that was Israel's monarchy. You can write down all the great kings that Israel had after David and Solomon. Hezekiah, Josiah, and that's it. Everyone else is a comical and tragic story of a downward slide of God's people Israel following the lead of their kings, doing two things, failing to live up to God's call and falling back into idolatry with other kings. Are you with me? These are the kings. Man, they're blowing it. Man, they're blowing it, okay? Then you've got this little bit of an interlude with the books of wisdom, right? Y'all, stick with me. I know this is Bible study, Sunday school. It helped me, and I was in seminary when I figured this out. So, then we've got this interlude of the books of wisdom. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, you can put Job in there too. It's this interlude of poetry and prayers and wisdom. Then you get into some more ayahs, names, you get the prophets. There's called major prophets and minor prophets, not because they're better or worse, because they're bigger or smaller. The rest of the Old Testament is the story of the prophets. Follow me real quick. We've got history, and then we've got prophecy. They stand side by side on a parallel track. I'm, Toby's not in here. She was with the kids tonight. I'm glad because she hates when I use sports analogies, but you'll allow me one tonight, okay? The history is the play-by-play. You with me? Some of us are. I'm going to lose you now. This is Al Michaels on Monday Night Football in its glory days telling you that so-and-so dropped back to pass and he had an incomplete... I'm already losing you, Becky. He's the play-by-play. He's telling you what's happening right now. You with me? Right next to him is John Madden. And John Madden, thank you, Tracy, Madden's been played in your house, I'm sure. Madden is saying, boom, man, he knocked him in the last week. This is the color commentary. You have the kings and all the history narrating what's going on. And then you've got the prophets outside of this failing system of power speaking God's truth. 
listening to God's voice and saying basically what Elisha just said. Don't you remember that God is still with us, still at work, despite your desperation? So Elisha says, I will handle this, send him to me, because prophets speak truth to power. But the question that we're left with into next week is, will a powerful outsider listen When he rolls up with his stacks and his entourage, he has an expectation of how Elisha ought to do what he's supposed to do. He has an expectation of some magic ritual in which Elisha, the man, would do something, but Elisha sends a messenger instead. And y'all know that this had to frustrate Naaman. He's not even going to come and talk to me. I'm at this dude's house. He sends me a messenger to tell me to what? Not meet with him, not do the ritual thing. He tells me to go into a river, the Jordan River. Dude, I've got two rivers where I came from that are way better than this river. This river stinks. This river looks like Lake Ray Hubbard in August. This stinks. He's got this ethnocentrism that says, my stuff, my place, my people are better. He's got this egocentrism that says, let me tell you how you ought to fix me. Here's what's not a surprise. You ready for it? Here's what's not a surprise as we get down to the end. Anger when expectations aren't met. Where I'm going to leave you in the cliffhanger is that Naaman storms off so mad because what he expected doesn't appear to happen. But here's the trick. What if God did what he expected? What if God did it how he expected? Would he trust God? Or would he just say, thanks, Elijah. Here's some money. See ya and back to his old life. What we're going to see, Lord willing, next time, and what I want to leave you with tonight is an invitation to an open-minded trust to believe that God is inviting and working even in those lost causes, even in those outsiders. And I'm inviting you into an open-minded trust that says, God, I don't fully understand this step that you're inviting me to take, but could I meet you and find you in it? This is an open-minded trust I'm inviting you into. And I want to close with this because it seems appropriate for us. Why would Elisha help him? Because he's giving him an opportunity to have just enough trust, just enough faith to take a next step to where this outsider might be found within God's reach. And I've been thinking about my sweet little Nora as she learns to swim. Nora at the edge of the pool doing what kids eventually are ready to do when they're learning to swim. She stands at the ledge and she's pretty unsure of it. She's only recently been dunking her head underwater and I've seen at the beginning of the summer she's really hesitant to do it until all of a sudden she's standing at the ledge two weeks ago And she's saying, okay, are you there? I said, yes, I'm here. Are you going to move? And she goes, closer, closer. Now I'm like, 
baby, you're going to scratch your hiney right on the ledge. You got to take a little bit of a jump here. And she doesn't realize that I'm not going to move, nor does she notice that my arms are already extended. She wants to micromanage where I'm at, how I'm there, am I going to move, can I trust him, but at a certain point, I can't do it for her. At a certain point, the invitation for her is to dive in. At a certain point, no one's going to have a relationship with Jesus for you. At a certain point, nobody's going to trust him in this step, in this situation, in this impossibility for you. Nobody's going to cry out to him in the same way that you can. We'll cry out with you, but we can't cry out exclusively for you. We can't dunk ourselves in the Jordan for you. Will we dive in? Will we dive in? Will we follow him? Will we trust him with just enough faith for the next step? And Lord willing, what we'll see is what happens with Naaman is a transformation that is so surprising, so unlikely, but the invitation is to know that God's arms are already extended. He's already reaching out to us. He's not moving. Will we jump? Will we trust him as we pray? Lord Jesus Christ, you stretched out your arms of love upon the hard wood of the cross so that all may come within the reach of your saving embrace. So clothe us, your people who've already said yes to you, who have set off to follow you, warts and bumps and bruises and all. So clothe us in your Holy Spirit so that we, reaching forth our hands in love, may invite and bring those who do not know you to the knowledge and love of you for the honor of your name, not ours, your kingdom, not ours, your glory, not ours. We ask this in the strong name of Jesus, our King. Amen. Now, if y'all would please stand and receive the benediction. Go confident in knowledge of God's steadfast love for you, assured of the healing touch of Jesus upon you, and emboldened by the transforming power of the Holy Spirit within you. Amen. Go in his divine peace.